0: Good morning everyone, my name's Peter. Uh, The Bible reading for this morning will come from Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 20 to 30. Uh, You can find it in the Bibles uh, sitting in front of you uh, or up on the screen. Matthew chapter 11, starting from verse 20. Let's read uh, God's Word together. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, It will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light."
1: Thanks Pete. Uh, if we haven't chatted before, my name's Jeff Keeley, and I'm one of the staff working here at Ann Street Presbyterian. I'd encourage you to keep a Bible open at Matthew chapter 11. I think it's on page 1389 of those pew Bibles that are there. Otherwise, if you've got a device, that's wonderful. Let's pray. Let's ask God for help to understand his word. Would you join me in prayer? Now Father God, we thank you that you speak to us through the scriptures and we pray for your Holy Spirit who breathed this word out to shed light on your word once again for us. And we pray also for your Holy Spirit to shed light on our hearts so that we might see our sin, we might see the ways we resist you uh, and help us then to trust your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Sometimes the truest thing to say is that two things are true about one thing. Sometimes the truest thing to say is that two things are true about one thing. So years back in Sydney, the NRMA, which is that inferior version of the RACQ, ran a series of ads on the side of Sydney buses, these kind of raised uh, 3D signs. As the bus is coming towards you, it says NRMA. As the bus is driving away from you, it says HELP. What does the sign say? NRMA. What does the sign say? Help. When people started uh, trying to understand light, they discovered first that it's waves. And then some bloke called Newton looked into light later and found out that it's particles. Now, how it can be both... Look, I failed physics at high school, like most of high school. How it can be both... It is. But what is light? Waves. What is light? Particles. There's other things like that too. And with these things, if you let kind of one side go, you lose the thing. The ad, it's no longer any good, you lose light. And I think something akin to that is going on here in Matthew chapter 11. There are two things that feel you know, contradictory, not about signs on a bus or about phenomenon in our world. It's about, verse 25, these things. What are they? Perhaps it's things of Jesus' kingdom. Uh, the things that he talks about there in verses 28 and 29, about entering his kingdom and finding rest for your soul there those who find that and those who miss out and there's two things so we're going to see today two things about the way into the kingdom of heaven and rest that feels contradictory and we'll see them as we sort of wander through the passage but you need to hold those two things together and Jesus friends is talking about this because the responses are starting to come out to him about him and his kingdom We've seen Jesus is doing the deeds of Israel's long-awaited Messiah. He is their king, but not everyone is seeing it. Even John the Baptist last week, remember, we saw, is asking, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? And that's because he was expecting his cards to turn up and drop some fire, to bring fire and brimstone, to, to purge away the sin and wickedness in Israel. But who's Jesus hanging out with? Tax collectors, prostitutes and sinners. What's he doing? And Jesus, again in Matthew 11, he starts to hint at how the rejection of his way into the kingdom is building. He says in verse 12 of chapter 11, from the time of John the Baptist onwards, people are violently trying to force their way into the kingdom. They're trying to force it to fit their agenda. The generation, he says, of Israel, they're not dancing to the tune which God is playing there in verse 16. So he clarifies, this is the way into the kingdom, the way to rest for yourselves. Before going any further, I want to say, look, it's worth listening to Jesus today as he talks about rest because I don't have to work too hard to convince you life is restless, isn't it? You type crisis into Google and everything is a crisis. Interest rates, politics, Race, gender, climate, it's a crisis. And so one commentator I listened to a bit points out that for younger generations, if you were born around the year 2000, you don't know anything different. It's all, it's all a crisis. He actually says it's a crisis climate. And there's no off switch for it. So in our hearts, restless much, right? Or there's that inner restlessness, perhaps you feel a, of an unsettled conscience about the things that you've done. And you wonder if you can find something that gives you rest from the gnawing sense that all is not well with others, all is not well with yourself, or with God. And so we're restlessly trying to put things right, both out there and in here. Here's the good news. Here's two things about finding rest. Hold them together and hold that thought because first up in this passage, you can't miss it, Jesus talks about who misses out on finding rest. And it is tied up with our choices. You know, John needn't worry about Jesus going soft on judgment in the context of people not being happy about the tune God's playing. Look at verse 20. Jesus starts denouncing the cities, interestingly, where most of his miracles, his mighty deeds have been performed because they did not repent. They didn't turn to their king. So Galilean, Jewish towns, and Bethsaida, he says they're going to fare worse on Judgment Day than Tyre and Sidon, that were Gentile cities condemned for their immorality, their greed. Capernaum there, that's Jesus' home base, that's where he's working out of. They probably thought, aren't we special? (laughs) We've got this Jesus guy who works wonders living amongst us, we might just be the gateway to heaven. But look at the way Jesus talks about them there. He uses Isaiah-like language uh, for the proud king of Babylon and he applies it to his hometown. Will you be lifted to the heavens? verse 23? No, you'll go down to Hades to destruction. And shockingly there verse 24, Sodom which is the epicenter of evil, it's like you know evil on crack in Genesis, right? it's going to find Judgment Day more bearable. Wow. Jesus is showing, isn't he, that he's got godlike contingent knowledge. Because he's God. Uh, he knows that what those cities in the Old Testament would have done if they had access to him, compared to those Jewish towns that do have access to him. Tyre, Sidon, Sodom would not have just seen a miracle worker who was vaguely interesting, they would have seen God and repented and found rest. This, folks, is a huge warning, isn't it, about how we choose, about judgment. Uh, Lyndon started talking about it last week, it's about our take on sin as well, like what we think is worst. Capernaum's unbelieving indifference is worse than the abominable things of Sodom. Get your head around that. Right? Not putting Jesus first and seeing that he's God, that's the worst thing. And we need to remember that Jesus is speaking to people who are thinking, look, we're God's people. We've got a book. We've got a Bible. We've got advance warning our king's coming. This should actually be hugely unsettling as we read it because we're in a similarly privileged place like those Galilean towns. And there is a warning here about what you do with the opportunity that you're given. It does have the feel of it, of if you've been given much, much is demanded of you. More revelation is a wonderful thing, but what you do with it, Jesus says, has massive consequences. Uh, One of my favourite commentators, uh, well... Flat out, Frederick Dale Brunner, He says Christian communities are in a special, are in special trouble on Judgment Day, not because Jesus has not really been in them, but because he has. You know, today you are going to see that he has really been with us, or is with us. We've got these elements with us, communion, that shows us that he is present. Really, you're hearing him speak now. You know, some of you have been going to church for a long time. Now, there's not a stack of grey around the room. uh, But if you've been coming for, you know, say 50 years, going to church for that long, that's 2,500 Sundays. That's a lot of sermons. That's That's a lot of access, a lot of revelation. But is it changing anything, right? Is Jesus just vaguely interesting, kind of, Lord, Is this more like a sort of regular therapy session that you come to so you feel like you've done the right thing? That kind of attitude is a bit like Capernaum. I like Jesus a bit, but not all of him. That's the way to miss out on rest. But here's where you start to see the paradox unfold, those two things that are true. So secondly, who finds rest? Those who are chosen. Jesus starts praying out loud for the benefit of the crowd and us. Verse 25... At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. That's part of why people don't respond. God hide, hides these things. And from the wise and learned, you kind of need the inverted commas, right? Wise in their own eyes. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, Pharisees, people who think they're too good for Jesus but notice he also reveals these things to little children and not necessarily literal little children, although I think little children often get Jesus better than adults do because they're not too clever for their own boots. It's a figure of speech for sure, but it's about people who are little of their, in their own eyes. And in Matthew's Gospel, that's been tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, a bunch of fishermen, a Gentile centurion who knows authority when he sees it, Desperate synagogue ruler, all kinds of outsiders. That is who God seems to work with. Now I don't know about you, maybe you find the idea of God's choosing people, if it feels unsettling or unfair. But notice verse 26, the way Jesus describes it, it's the pleasure of his father. It's sheer grace. He's not bound to do this, but he does. And it may still feel discriminatory, but if I can put it this way, he's discriminating against people who think, "May I've got no need for Jesus. And in a sense, you can say, he's just giving people what they want. That's hardly unfair. And moreover, this choosing, notice it's tied up with Jesus. It's God's business, we would say, to choose people, but Jesus is also saying it's his business. Verse 27, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So the doctrine of election, that's what theologians call this, maybe when you think about it, it drives you to despair or disdain. But the way we are supposed to think about it is that it's a grace thing. And it's in the gracious hands of Jesus. Not some cold, abstract, far-off God, Actually, that's not what God's like. That's how we often make him up to be in our head. It's in, it's in Jesus' hands, right? That might be a more helpful way to think about it. And when it does come to thinking about who's in and who's out, who chooses whom? Well, first up here, God chooses. And the great thing about that is that it kills your, it kills your pride. Jesus hasn't chosen anyone because they're smart, savvy. He hasn't chosen you because you've got your act together, you know, to put your pants on before your shoes. Like, he, he's done this because, well, little. He chooses little ones, helpless ones. That he bothers to reveal the Father to people who deserve nothing, it's the kind of thing that humbles us. And it keeps us small. In a good way. Uh, small enough, little enough to get under the low bar actually into the kingdom of heaven. And of course, look, it should make us really thankful too. God choosing people, choosing you, it should comfort us because, well, the warnings in this passage are pretty full on. You might be worried about that. But if you're sitting here today going, No, I do, I believe this. I believe this is my king. You've received a precious gift. Wonderful insight. And so along with Jesus, in verse 25, you can say, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for whatever reason, you've hidden this from others, but you've revealed it to me of all people. That is a mystery, but boy, I'm thankful. That kind of posture then gets us into the right place, really, doesn't it, to do the next thing in this passage. Who gets to find rest? Those who are chosen, those who choose it. Last thing of all, really. Verse 28, those well-known words, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Who chooses whom? God chooses, we do. And the paradoxes keep coming here. Uh, If you're ever worried that God's choice means he's pushing people away, well, the invitation's to all. (laughs) All. Another paradox, it's for people who are wearied and burdened and then Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. you know, If you're wondering what a yoke is, I joked this morning at the 9 o'clock service, if you're thinking eggs, you need to learn to spell. But it's actually a big bar that's stuck on the back of oxen to make them work together. Uh, Metaphorically, we talk about being under the yoke of slavery. Jesus is saying, come under his rule. And he's contrasting his yoke, his burden with others. In Matthew's Gospel, it's got to be the Pharisees because later on in Matthew 23, he pronounces woes on them because they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on people's shoulders and do not lift a finger to help them. Hundreds of commands on top of the law so that you didn't break the law, so that you could try to be right with God. And it provided no peace and rest. And the thing is, we can still make yokes for ourselves, can't we? Our own programs to find rest, peace with God. You know, maybe, I don't know, check off the right amount of church attendance. You set a sort of a reasonable bar for good behaviour. Do a little bit of philanthropic good stuff so that you can say, I'm slightly better than my neighbours who don't, don't seem to give a rip about anybody else. But does it deal with the wrong... There's a deal with that sense that you're not right. The unsettled conscience. It's not just kind of getting to God yokes. There's other burdens that we make for ourselves, other rods for our back. Like, do you have to always say yes to people? That's pretty tiring. Parents, have you become the literal beast of burden carrying your kids to every extracurricular activity under the sun and letting them do whatever they want to do because you can't let them miss out or be bored? Or have anyone else think that you're a bad parent. That's pretty tiring. Maybe it's what you do on social media. You know, you put up that carefully curated content, but you kind of make it look sort of average still. But why do you do it? Because you want to be liked. Tick. And on it goes. Look... uh, Under it all, we're restless as sinners who've rebelled against God and his rule. We are restless because we do not live in a way that fits with how he made us. Aside from even thinking about the eternal trajectory that puts you on. Jesus invites you to come and find rest from all of that and take up his yoke. And again, what's his yoke? I said earlier a bit about his rule. But notice verse 29, it's learn from me. At a minimum, it's his teaching. And you might think... Here's another bossy religious leader laying rules on me, but the paradoxes keep coming. It's a yoke, it's a burden, but it's easy and light. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message is helpful. He says, you know, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. In sheer number of commands, Jesus asks less than the Pharisees, right? And he calls you to better things, to live in a way that leads to rest. Like, I wonder what difference practically taking Jesus' commands about sex and adultery and lust would make for marriages, lasting, family breakdown, all that kind of stuff, right? What, what about his teaching on money and possessions, you know, where your treasure is, how valuable you are in God's sight? What would that do to your sense of contentment rather than restlessly working for more stuff? What if we learn to forgive like Jesus talks about doing? What difference would that make to our relationships? And, you know, understanding his sovereign, powerful rule that he talks about in verse 27, all things in his hand, what difference would that do to our hearts in a crisis climate? The deep restlessness, the deep worry about eternal life and judgment. You know, there's another way to take up his yoke and it boils down to again, ways into the kingdom. The Pharisees say, obey, do and perform and they do not help you at all. There's Pharisees that are ancient and modern. There's probably one in your head if you're anything like me and they never lift a finger to help you, but Jesus will. See how Jesus describes himself in verse 29? Gentle... And humble in heart. He's so gentle that the prospect of you facing judgment for your restless striving away from God moves him to humble himself and take up a cross so that your soul finds rest. Now, taking up his yoke is about saying no to any kind of self justifying self salvation program and trusting him. That's the yoke he wants you to take. You know, burden-wise, taking up Jesus' yoke is a bit like uh, taking up a life jacket when you're drowning. So sometimes the truest thing to say is that two things are true about one thing. The sign on the side of the bus, NRMA, that is no big deal, but a sign that's NRMA and help is clever and it's great when I've locked my keys in the car again. Light being waves and particles, it's not scintillating, but it literally gets you out of bed in the morning, doesn't it? And if you let go of one of those things, NRMA is not help and light isn't light. And if we let go of what Jesus says about God's election and our choice, we miss the truest thing about rest and about life. You know, If entering the kingdom is all about God's choice, well, maybe we won't care as much as we should about what Jesus wants and learning from him. You think, I'm chosen, doesn't matter what I do. You might start ignoring his words of woe. And that's a perilous place to be. You might not take him seriously and follow his teaching, and that actually, ironically, opens the door to a whole lot of restless living. Life that leads to restlessness. If you make finding rest all about your choice, though, your effort, oh, that's a restless place, too, isn't it? Justifying your existence all the time? Far out two things are truest and that's good news for us who chooses who god chooses you you take his invitation let's pray almighty god and loving father we confess we're wearied and burdened by life's restlessness the burdens others put on us trying to prove ourselves we're wearied and burdened by sin and so we give you thanks for your son the lord jesus christ all things are his we thank you that today we've heard him reveal you. We thank you that he's the king who humbles himself so we find life in your kingdom. I want to pray for people who might be hearing this for the first time. I pray they'd come to Jesus, take up his yoke and find rest. But for us who've heard this before, help us to be little, to live under his word. we pray this in Jesus' name.